Uh, we ask, Heavenly Father, for your help as we come uh, to the book of Leviticus again. We ask that we would heed your word uh, and that you be applying it to our hearts by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and good morning again. Uh, we're in the book of Leviticus chapter 20. And uh, I want to just say from the outset, I had no idea it was Mardi Gras weekend when, uh, when we landed at this passage. Uh, and uh, read the blurb uh, at some stage, but not now. Now you need to have Leviticus 20 open. That would be awesome. Uh, when I was a property valuer, sometimes I would tune into the John Laws Talkback Radio. Morning, Sydney. And uh, it was great to listen. I did enjoy listening and hearing people's opinions about all sorts of topics. And every month or so, this same question would come up. And what is the question? Well, you can see it there on the outline. If Christians are free to eat prawns, then why is it homosexuality okay? Uh, Leviticus outlaws both because prawns are bottom feeders. They feet on the ground, and if you were here last week, you know that's out. Uh, but now, because we eat prawns, the other must be okay too, right? That was the logic. And the idea is then that Christians, of course, are bigoted, and they're not consistent on this matter. And every fruit loop under the sun will get on the radio, spouting their two bobs worth. And maybe... Maybe you've not heard the question before, but I want to say it's been out there for a long, long time. And Magda Zabanski has made a bit of it in the past as well. When she talks about same-sex marriage, she's usually in the book of Leviticus, telling us that we're not consistent. And maybe also, let's, let's move on to a different issue, maybe you've also heard the issue about birds and tats, tattoos. And so people would cite something like Leviticus 19. Can you see Leviticus 19? Verse 27, let me read it. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. So the logic is, it's outlawed, no tats. Christians shouldn't wear tats. But why is the other okay? I read this and think, well, too bad if you're a hipster. If you're a hipster, you're in big trouble. So what do we do with it? Maybe these kinds of questions that I've tossed up this morning will help us understand Leviticus. And that is absolutely my hope. Maybe we could have entitled this talk, Prawns, Beards and Sex. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Well, let's deal with the prawns first. Who here is an Israelite from the ancient Near East? Nobody. That's what I thought. Is anybody here living in the desert of Sinai, heading towards Canaan? No, that's what, that's what I thought. No one? In fact, we, do not, we live not after Sinai. We live after Jesus Christ, don't we? And because of that, what did Jesus say to the Jews about ceremonial food laws? This was last week, wasn't it? Mark chapter 7. Let me read it to you again. Are you so dull, Jesus says, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, 
And then out of the body, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Yay! And he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And that's true now, whether one is a Jew or, like most of us probably, a Gentile. So that's the prawns. You happy with that? If you're not, you can listen to last week's talk. But what about beards and tattoos? Well, context would be helpful here. If you turn it, if you've got Leviticus open, flick over to chapter 18. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5. Because this is important context. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Don't be like Egypt. Don't be like Canaan. Or chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. Here's a bit more context. Verse 22 of chapter 20. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did these things, I abhorred them. What things? Those things in chapter 18, 19 and 20. You'll possess their land. I'll give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey on it goes. So that's pretty plain, isn't it? The law is saying through Moses, don't be an Egyptian. Don't be a Canaanite. Canaanite. Why? Because they are my enemies right at the moment. They are my enemies. And you are not to be like my enemies. Instead, be my people. They're to be his holy people who are set apart, different, distinct. They are mine, God says. And so on the point of trim beards and tats, well, that's something that the Egyptians did and that's something that the Canaanites did. But the Israelites, you've you got to be, be who you are and you are not those things. So none of this beard trimming and tattooing stuff. You're not to look like God's enemies. You're not to eat like God's enemies. You're not to relate like God's enemies. You're not to worship like God's enemies. You're not to get on like my enemies do. You're entirely something different. You're mine, God says. And this is part of Israel learning to be God's wholly distinct people in the ancient Near East world, set apart for him and his glory. And is this a command which we continue today as followers of Jesus? 
such distinctiveness for us, because that's still true for us today, but it's not about prawns or beards or tattoos, is it? Our distinctiveness now comes from our belonging to Christ, our witness to him as people who are not God's enemies, but loved instead in Christ Jesus, forgiven. People who follow Christ and worship Christ. By the way, you might notice I did trim my beard this morning, uh, but I'm not going to show you my tat. That's not going to happen. <laughs> now, this is where some might conclude that these uh, sex laws in Leviticus 20 are still equally illegitimate. And let's face it, Magda, again, famously tweeted that Christ doesn't mention homosexuality once. But that's just an argument from silence, isn't it? That's an argument from what Jesus didn't say. It's much better to argue from what Jesus did say. And what did Jesus say? Well, he, of course, affirms marriage. In Matthew 19, verse 4, I've referenced it in your notes, I think. Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Here is the norm. Here is the pattern of marriage. And where does it come from? What is Jesus citing here? He's referencing Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. And because this comes from our origins, from our time of creation, when Jesus talks about marriage like this, you can know he is saying that this is part of our createdness. Male and female will be united to become one flesh. You don't need me to explain that, do you? You know what that's a picture of? To become one. In every sense of the word, they're literally made for each other. Biologically made for each other. And so that which is true physically as two become one is also true emotionally and spiritually as a gift from God. It's curious when I do wedding prep with people and I talk about two becoming one. I go, you get that? what that's about, right? And the bride, the prospective bride always gets it, but the bloke, no, no, he's not going to own up to that. The proper place for sex, the proper and right place is the bounds of marriage. And it's covered with promises, and so any departure is adultery or immorality. And it's as old as Eden. And this is the norm that now spreads, uh, now threads consistently through the entire storyline of the Bible. It's why Sodom and Gomorrah is a thing in the book of Genesis. It's why these chapters of Leviticus 
are important. It's why David's adultery was so devastating. It's why the warnings in Proverbs are so stark. It's how the prophets will talk about Israel's relationship with God. They'll, they'll describe, the prophets describe God as this jilted husband and Israel, where they're, they're the bride that's turned adulterous whore. Which sounds savage, but you read the book of Hosea and it is all there. Paul also affirms marriage in his letters. The book of Revelation even affirms marriage, can you believe it? Uh, as it portrays a picture that communicates our appearance before God at the end of history as a radiant bride. That's us. And the groom, who is the groom? It's, it's Jesus. And so marriage is sacred to the Christian. It's a gift of God where husband and wife are to enjoy each other exclusively. Marriage is supposed to be that earthly wonder between a man and a woman that speaks of a bigger covenant relationship between God and his people, us. Ephesians 5, verse 25, says this. See the connection. Husbands, love your wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is, straight away. That which is true in marriage is true spiritually in our relationship with God through Christ. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Who who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. You see it? For we are members of his body. And then Paul writes, what does he write? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. There it is. And so the prawns and the tats and the beards it's about being an Israelite in a particular time of salvation history and it's about distancing yourselves from God's enemies, not being like God's enemies. Don't be like this. But on the subject of marriage, see that it is anchored in creation. It is part of our createdness and it's therefore part of how we express our humanity. And we've seen this morning so far, it ultimately points us to Christ Jesus and our relationship with God through him. Which means that even if you're here this morning as a single person, there is much for you to rejoice in as well. Because the bigger thing for all of us is the ultimate relationship 
is the one we have in Christ Jesus. Now, you might say, okay, Adam, that's all nice. Cut to the chase, though. Are there any specific verses about same-sex activity in the New Testament? And I've spelt them out for you in your outline. Romans 1, 26-27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. We're not going to read them this morning, just because of time and because we need to explore Leviticus 20. But when you look those verses up, and I trust you will, don't make the mistake of reading those verses assuming that everyone else is immune. Because Hebrews chapter 13 tells us to keep the marriage bed pure. Yet the sanctity of marriage has been diminished for many generations, not just this one. This has been going on way before the LGBTI movement gained momentum. Way before. Further, it's also worth saying that you don't go to hell for struggling with same-sex attraction. And you don't go to heaven for being straight. You go to hell for rejecting the Lord Jesus as Saviour and King, irrespective of your sexual orientation, gender, culture or race. When we land back at Leviticus 20, notice it seems any departure from the norm is recorded, not just homosexuality. I want you to see that. As chapter 20 opens in verses 1 to 5, we saw the prospect of child sacrifices to Molech. Can you see how godless they are and how such godlessness expresses itself? This is how God's enemies get on, remember, and see that it's all upside down and twisted and disordered. And hey, surprise, what are the casualties in verses 1 to 5? The main casualty of this godless behaviour are the children. It's always the children as they're sacrificed. True then, still true today. Verse 3, God says, They've defiled my sanctuary. They've profaned my holy name. This is not how God's people are to get on. This is a nightmare. In verse 6, it talks about mediums or spiritists. Uh, they're people used to communicate with the dead. Uh, why would you do that? Why would you seek a word from the dead when you're friends with the God of life? And so everything is a departure from God's norm. It's, it's what his enemies do. I mean, even in verse 14, did you see that sick dude that marries his wife and his mother-in-law? What is wrong with that person? I don't know. What is he thinking? But see that they're all departure from marriage. And see that it's a pathway to death. Now this is one of the things that might have struck you as uh, Kathy read it out for us this morning. Because previously death came about when the unclean came into the presence of the holy. And it's not about our proximity to God now, but it's about right conduct and order in relationships. And so how would we explain this if Magda was here this morning and said, tell me about death by stoning Christian people in your Bible, what would you say? 
Oh, I've got five things I'm going to say really quickly. I know you're feeling ripped off. There are only four on the outline. But another one came to me, and it's good. I think it's good. But anyway, I'll keep going. First thing to notice is at where our problem is with the stoning is not much the sin, but the consequence. The sin is something God has declared to be profane. Our problem is the stoning bit, I'm guessing. We don't like that bit. And I want to say to you, well, as humans, we've probably got it the wrong way around. We've got it the wrong way around. From God's perspective, it's the offence. And of course, it's only an issue if you disregard God's commands. And if you behave like you're God's enemy, well, how else do you think it's going to roll if you're sacrificing children and the like, worshipping other gods and the like? Here's the second thing. The public stoning shows us the corporate effect of sin. That sexual sin particularly is not a private matter. It damages the community and it's a sure way to wreck a church. Ask any pastor. The third thing to notice is that not all sin is the same in chapter 20. We, it's a popular idea that all sin is the same among Christians. And we come to that conclusion because we know the wages of sin is death. But it doesn't mean that all sin stands on the same footing. Not all sin is the same at that level. In the Bible, sexual sin and dodgy false teachers come under particular attention. The fourth thing is, this is what's coming to the Canaanites. In verses 22 to 24, we heard that. They're going to be vomited out. And they're being evicted for their wickedness. And so if it follows for Israel, should they lapse, then they can expect this punishment. And as we read the Old Testament, we know how it rolls. Fifthly, here's the thing I want to grab you. And I want to say that the reality of staying is still real. This physical reality we read here in chapter 20, it's classic Leviticus. Because Leviticus is all about the physical reality pointing us to something that's spiritually true. And the spiritual reality is, of course, that the wages of sin is death, particularly of the sexual nature. But we're talking spiritual death now. Eternal punishment and hell that might make a public stoning akin to a teddy bear's picnic by comparison. But of course, you won't hear anyone complaining about that. So, Adam, are we to go out and hold public stonings? And the answer is no. Why not? Because of the gospel. We are no longer God's enemies. In the gospel, we know that Jesus takes the punishment for us. This is what Jesus does for you and I on the cross when we come to the table. God's wrath and anger, uh, his punishment is turned aside. And as we think about Jesus on the cross at the table and what he's purchased for us, we remember, oh man, don't we need him to? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. So who's left to throw the stones? 
And that's John 8, isn't it? And so if we all understand our need for Jesus, if we all understand God's grace and kindness to us, can I say Christians especially need to be careful about sounding self-righteous on such matters. If not for the grace of God, we would all be subject to judgment. But by his grace, instead, we are no longer God's enemies. Which means that we do not live like we're his enemies. Just doesn't make sense. By God's grace, he seeks and saves all sorts of people. And as a church, we're going to need to come to terms with that more and more and more as our world changes. And we're going to need to remember the gospel is for everybody. And so let's share it with our world, with people made in God's image. Let us be distinctly Christian, not as a matter of beards and prawns and tattoos, but because we love and serve Jesus and his church. And let us uphold the uniqueness and the dignity of marriage between husband and wife as a reflection of Christ's love for us all. All to the glory of God. Amen.